almost all great physicians will continue to strive to be better and will not be satisfied with where they are at currently and know that they can always learn, always get better. So, But to, to get that, you, you need to be able to have your eyes wide open to your own uh, fallibility, error and mistakes. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Revitalize Women. Healthcare is a dumpster fire right now, but there are people out there that have figured out a formula to go from surviving to thriving. Listen to the Revitalizing Doctor podcast to hear inspiring stories of women physicians that are changing healthcare. Hi listeners, thanks for joining, and I'm so glad to bring you my conversation with Michelle Johnston. Michelle is an emergency physician and an author. She practices at the Royal Perth Hospital in Perth, Australia. The first time Michelle and I recorded was in 2018, where we discussed her amazing book, Dustfall. We meet today to discuss her equally amazing book, Tiny Uncertain Miracles. A brief plot summary. The main character's name is Marek. Marek takes a job as a hospital chaplain when his attempt as a priest doesn't really go as planned. He's given a shady office in the bowels of a public hospital next to the office of a banished scientist called Hugo. Hugo has uncovered a bacteria that not only could produce protein, but also can produce gold. The actual book itself, audience, is worth a purchase because it's amazing. It's beautiful. To me, it looks like a prayer book, something that you'd find at church. It's white, it's jacketless, and it has gold lettering. And gold is a theme threaded throughout the story. Let's get to the conversation where I've asked Michelle about Marek. Tell us more about Marek. Yes, Marek was a character that started to tell this story very early on in the iterations of the book. And I, I needed a man of God to be able to believe in the science to be the foil for the scientist who was kind of believing in fate and he'd love to read his horoscopes and he's the one who gets a little carried away by these miraculous happenings uh, and is unable to really get rid of all of those other ethereal thoughts to look at things in a scientific way. So the two were very much the vehicles to tell this story together. Um, But Marek, I... I don't know. I don't know where my characters come from necessarily. Uh, I fell in love with him from the first, the moment he hit the page. I loved him being. Uh, people ask, "Oh, who who are you in the book? Where do, where do you come from?" And obviously, there is a character in there who may well look identical to me uh, in her scrubs with her margarine-coloured hair, uh, looking a bit tired and a bit wan. Uh, but I find myself mostly uh, at one with Marek. Uh, he's it just his level of questioning, his self-doubt, um, his 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 wanderings through this world, trying to just figure stuff out, which seems unfigurable. So he, that's where he uh, came from. But the other the other thing that allowed me to do, because there is a lot of medicine in the book, I write scenes about critical care. There's a cardiac arrest, a trauma, organ donations, and to be able to tell it through the eyes of a chaplain rather than a doctor, allowed me as a writer to 
to see things in a new way. And if there's not if there's not a better definition of what writing is than seeing things in a new way, I don't know what it is. And this ties into our conversation. A lot of people don't see how you can be both author, writer, as well as doctor. And you and I have discussed these worlds are not separate. In fact, they're quite complementary. We are witness to stories and actors in stories all the time. You mentioned that about Marek having to take a sticker to record what he did with each patient. And he's completely bamboozled by that, totally befuddled. What? And he's being asked to do his KPIs, his key performance indicators, and put them in a file, which, of course, I'm sure is not true, but it, made, it amused me. Uh, so it went in there. And I, it was important to have a number of kind of humorous foils because there was so much seriousness. I'm a, a big fan of books that don't, no matter the seriousness of the themes, they don't take themselves too seriously, or there is some, just some humour um, and some lightness uh, within within the, the, the darkest hours. I was immediately tickled and drawn in with this book when you started speaking of gold and Rumpelstiltskin. Growing up, we had a cassette player, one of those portable cassette players with a cassette tape. And I recall listening over and over and over again to the story of Rumpelstiltskin. And um, I'd like you to share with the audience this theme of gold, uh, gold thread, uh, gold particles, and Rumpelstiltskin throughout the book. At one point, wondered whether this book would simply be uh, a fable, whether it would remain magical, uh, there would be no retreat back into the world of reality and where that would what that would mean uh to to write that sort of a book however the the parts that were the the questioning the religion men struggling soft men struggling with friendship trying to work out their their places in life meant that i had to pull it back into this level of reality so i couldn't let it take that fairy tale uh, take go through that door. I need to come back and have these two parallel pathways the entire way through the book, which was to keep the magic realism, the the strangeness, the setting in the hospital, the dead ends, the the strangeness, the things that move when you don't necessarily expect them to move, but also having scientific veracity the entire time. So the bottom theme but the thing that underlines uh, underlies this book is bacteria making gold surprisingly suddenly unexpectedly my man hugo the scientist comes into work one day and the bacteria the escherichia coli that he uses to produce proteins have just one day started to make tiny little gold nuggets within them and to maintain a level of scientific truth so to keep that story alive, so you could actually read it uh, and it may, you know, keep, keep that that element alive was no mean feat. Let me tell you. Although I, I cheated, I have a wonderful younger brother who is a scientist who uses E. coli to produce proteins for good, not evil. And um, I went over to his lab. I went over with a notebook and put on the lab coat and walked around with the 
the, the safety glasses and asking questions in that lab that I don't think anybody had ever asked before. It was all very peculiar uh, and just trying to work out, well, how could that happen if these bacteria were genome edited and environmental contaminants and all sorts of things? So we eventually got there. I don't know whether I quite pulled it off. I had to learn a lot. CRISPR, DNA cops, all this stuff. There was a lot of research that went into that part of it. I loved this sort of E. coli to gold miracle. Um, diving a little deeper into gold, uh, gold as a fabled substance, um, in the book it is mentioned about how gold is actually brought up a lot in the Bible. Um, it's a part of Robin Fables. We talked about Rumpelstiltskin. Um, and I, I hearken back to your first book, Dust Fall, and the association with mining. So, you know, what is your relationship with gold? I allowed each of the characters to talk about gold in different ways. Uh, in that, that way, allowing my, myself to, to work through some of those um, a relationship, I guess. And fascinating, of course, from the very start, how gold was actually formed in the crashing nebula uh, and coming flying down to earth on rocks after the event, uh, well after the event, uh, and getting buried beneath the soil rather than, well, I, I guess I hadn't really given it much thought as to how elements formed necessarily and which ones came from where. So from the very start, I, I found that fascinating. Gold, of course, right to the other end then, has has medical uses. We inject gold, or we certainly did not to, uh, um, up until not that long ago, we inject gold into people's butts for rheumatoid arthritis as an anti-inflammatory. So between, so, so every epoch, every era in human history, somehow gold has played this very important part, uh, uh, often obviously, and it's certainly the case in the Bible and, and, all, th and all through cultures, it was the most uh, sought-after metal or for control and power. Um, interestingly, even up to the time, and, and alchemy, of course, was the great period of time. Our greatest alchemist, of course, was Isaac Newton, although he was that was what he was most proud of rather than his his other uh, incredible discoveries of of physics but at the time i think it was queen elizabeth saying well we're going to need to outlaw alchemy because if everyone can make gold that'll put us out of business we'll be we'll be poorer what what's that going to mean for our jewels that's a perfect setup for another example of your use of gold in the book you have a character liliana and um i was wondering um, your decision-making with writing her as if she spoke with disjointed English, you know, English not being her first language, and back to her character, she had gold teeth, and you hearken back to World War II and people being sacrificed for their teeth to kind of, you know, Nazis uh, trying to get yes. their gold. Yes, um, and... She was a character that came unbidden as well. I needed to have some environmental gold. And this woman, Liliana, just, just grew and grew and grew. And she walked these kind of magical corridors, crunching out stories to, that no one could hear with these teeth that she believed were not really hers and certainly had come from a very, very traumatic period in Croatia um, uh, with... Um, a, fa a father who was a dentist making uh, dentures out of gold for, 
to keep them keep the gold teeth safe for when the people came back and of course they never came back and she inherited the teeth so that was once again you know, I, I guess another limb of um partly a plot device but but felt very real to me and stories that I wanted to do justice to. I think if you're ever going to dive into these really important human stories through history that are not necessarily yours to tell, we have a lot of talk about appropriation of stories uh, and characters that basically my bottom line is uh, I think you have to be able to write in different voices, take different stories, but your intentions must be honourable. Uh, and if you can say that uh, that my, that my intentions are honourable and in the service of something greater, then I think you have some justification. Uh, the second caveat, of course, is as much research as you can, uh, so that you're 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 giving it uh, the level of honesty that it, these stories deserve. You seem to be anticipating all of my questions. I asked is that young woman physician in scrubs, burnt out, tired, just at wit's end, taking a break outside. Is that you? And, and I wrote a few times in my show notes, is that you? Is that Dr. You? Perhaps you could say the entire book was just written to tell people how tired I am. Uh, but yes, she she is absolutely uh, me. I think there is a, there was a moment that I recall where I was sitting at the cathedral lawn. So we have a cathedral over the road from my hospital, just like in the book. And I was sitting there in my blue scrubs and a tiny little bird, a little willy wagtail came and jumped on my knee. And I, I just sat there. It was such a beautiful moment. And I had uh, my notebook because I have a notebook everywhere in my scrub pockets. And I thought, and I, I didn't want to move the bird. I didn't want to move so the bird would jump off. Uh, but eventually it did. And I and it must have just stayed with me. And then when so Merrick walks through the cathedral and sees this doctor writing in her notebook and they lock gazes just for a moment and they're going, what, what are you doing here? And what are you doing here? And, of course, that's my tiny in-joke that I'm actually writing him into existence. And he's going, well, what are you writing? Can't I see? Um, so that was, uh, you know, once again, I have to do these things to amuse myself, Reza, because, uh, you know, how else am I going to get my jollies? Uh, the other thing, of course, people inserting them into their own, inserting themselves into their own works, uh, art is, is, is a fairly uh, long-standing tradition. So I was just following that. <laughs> How has it been writing your second book uh, after the success of your first book? And listeners who may not be familiar, can you just give like the synopsis of Dustfall? Absolutely. Death, Dustfall uh, was uh, published in 2018. It's set up in the um, asbestos mines of Wittenoom, which your uh, listeners may not know is let's call it the armpit of Australia. Uh, actually, it's not the Whitnoom part is, but it's right next to some of the most beautiful, exquisite um, countryside you'll ever see, gorgeous and just magnificent. But the Whitten the asbestos mines were at this highest chapter in Australia's history. But the story is actually about medical error, human error, and the fallout after error. And a doctor runs away up to this, the abandoned town of Wittenoom, which had its own hideous history of uh, death uh, and destruction and corporate uh, neglect and government neglect. And really the story is juxtaposing 
the what happens when a single individual makes a mistake, in this case a doctor, and what fallout it has versus that corporate error when there's loss of life and how these two take very different paths. Yeah. Continuing on with that, so now you write um, this second work and you continue this theme of medicine, medical cases, and even medical error. And I wonder the extent to which this sort of weighs on your unconscious, on all of us who practice medicine, the unconscious, but particularly as emergency physicians. We are a very vulnerable lot. We are, whatever we do is transparent. And I think if you are a reflective, insightful clinician, you will take any, any error or even any uh, behaviour or occurrences that are not up to the standard that you would expect of yourself extremely seriously. Uh, I, I teach a lot of juniors and, you know, I, they'll beat themselves up also after not, uh, not behaving optimally or, or making optimal decisions. And although we, we give comfort and, uh, and try and be supportive, there's a part of me that says, it's, it's not a bad thing to beat yourself up a little uh, because that's, that's reflection, that's that self-internal feedback. So I think I, I, I'd imagine that most uh, really competent, uh, humble physicians will have a big part somewhere in their hippocampus or amygdala that, that just stores those things up where they haven't, been, they haven't performed at what they perceive is the standard that they would like to. And almost all great physicians will continue to strive to be better and will not be satisfied with where they are at currently and know that they can always learn, always get better. So, But to, to get that, you, you need to be able to have your eyes wide open to your own uh, fallibility, error and mistakes. Uh, so, yeah, that does, I think it is a theme that I, I it's it's a very human theme uh, in many ways. It's just the stakes are so much higher in the jobs that we do. Um, and I, talking about sort of a, like an oeuvre or a canon, I think as you start to work and write uh, more books, m most writers will kind of keep coming back to the big themes that occupy their mind, they're obsessed with and, and you know, I guess the human condition is is too broad a topic, but you know, the, our fallibility, flaws, um, the softness of humans. I love uh, the, the soft, a, a soft resilience, maybe, and human folly. That's my other great thing. Great people just doing doing crazy things, but uh, uh, doing them because they they believe in them and having great belief and and faith, despite what ordinary people might say about them. So I think that's, they're the things that I love to be able to explore. Yeah. Can you speak a little further uh, of this sort of this weight, this fallibility, this um, being a bit preoccupied with medical error and how it actually accumulates over time? You know, if you're a first year trainee versus a 20 years later trainee, what effect it has and how that is reflected perhaps in the physician in the book in her just deep fatigue. Yes, I'm not really even sure how to answer that. 
I think everybody takes a very, very different journey. Uh, I, I, I think it does, it does take a toll. But we know we see these amazing physicians who get to the end of their career and say, that was amazing. You know, I had the best time. I don't want to leave. I loved every moment of it. Uh, it was hard, but I loved it. And, uh, I, I, we all just have such, it's the extraordinary, once again, human condition, how, the, the variety of ways that we deal with things, that we cope. We are just such wonderful creatures, we humans, just creating this narrative about ourselves and our lives that, that that's only ours to be had and we will all deal with those things differently. But I, I believe that, that they accrete, you know, they build up like scale uh, and they you might come to peace with them and yourself and that's a wonderful place to be but it doesn't mean all those things go away uh and I, so I, I i think i think it's just the endless variety of ways that people will 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 make peace with their own fallibility and flaws your relationship to words how would you describe it how do you feel about words I would describe the relationship is lifelong since before I really ought to have read. It just was, they spoke to me. Uh, They loved me. I loved them. Still do. It's like a dopamine hit. It's like crack cocaine. When you read a really fresh new adjective together with a noun, when you hear the music, the musicality of words put together, when there's a rhythm to a sentence, I honestly, I, I, it is the biggest buzz to read. And can you imagine when you kind of pull it off yourself and you go, "Oh my gosh, how did I do that?" Uh, that it's it is honestly like there's somewhere in your nigro striatal system has just been pinged with dopamine. Uh, so I think that's that's it. There is just an exquisite uh, relationship between words and this deep sense of joy and what language can do what it can achieve so not just telling a story but telling it in this musical way with prosody that that kind of bypasses your frontal lobes and your thinking lobe and just is and it creates these these wonderful stories so I have always it's really difficult in many ways uh but but such fun it's like I go out metaphor mining uh I look around and uh, and try and be very open to finding new ways that words can work together to say something new. Because after all, uh, that's once again the definition of, of good writing is to see something new, think of it anew, and then write it in new, new ways. I say go poetic or go home. <laughs> Your voice. Uh, you and I first met. Uh, in the context of a conference called Smack. And I was aware of your spoken voice before I really appreciated the depth and extent of your written voice. When did you realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? I remember the first time I gave a talk at a reasonable size conference and it must be 15 years ago. And I was appalling and I read the whole thing and I was so embarrassed that I could be so bad that I made it a lifelong journey to get better. Uh, And really, uh, that's once again, that was fired in the crucible of failure, like so many of my achievements. Uh, And I went back and I learned and I tried to get better and I 
listened to the horror of myself uh, in order to, because I, look, I believe I believe in communication. I believe in language. Uh, I've been the beneficiary of so much wonderful um, lifelong education from others that I wanted to be able to be, you know, a participant rather than just a spectator and give those same gifts to others in some way. But it's just, it is a work in progress. I was speaking on a podcast yesterday and I um, I just made some flippant comment. And of course, my agent, thank you very much, Martin, tweeted it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got podcast Tourette's. I just say things and they just come out and I go, I'm going to do better on Reese's podcast. I promise myself. <laughs> you actually placed a tweet out today that I saw um, ahead of our recording and it just made me smile, laugh, and it felt like it was a perfect preparatory comment. Uh, you tweeted, deep joy to talk to Laurie Steed about tiny uncertain miracles and all things vulnerable, weird, and wild about this writing life parentheses, please excuse photo of me looking like a Gorgon without the snake hair. I blame lighting and age. And that listeners is the exact uh, compilation of a Michelle Johnston, pithy, witty, wise, funny, amazing use of word uh, passage. I mostly, I just am amazed that anybody would read a word I say. So thank you, Risa. I do appreciate that. <laughs> The Risa Wrap-Up. I will start by thanking my guest. Michelle, thank you so much for making the time, adjusting time zones, and meeting me in conversation. Audience, uh, many of us think that we cannot write. We think we don't have stories. However, all of us are storytellers. All of us have the ability to translate our life's experience onto the page and share it with other people. Now, the fact is, Michelle has done this. She does this brilliantly. Not once. She's done it now twice. What I find so beautiful and amazing about Michelle's writing is, number one, her use of words. I always have a dictionary nearby when I'm reading her books. Number two, Michelle's ability to describe and illustrate for the reader the patient experience, the hospital experience, the clinician experience. I relate to so much that she writes. And believe me, you don't need to be an emergency medicine physician to relate. Finally, what Michelle really beautifully captures is the human condition. Right and wrong, faith, light, dark, death, love, and everything in between. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>